Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Um, Father, we thank you tonight for the gift of the opportunity to be together. We thank you for the ways that you're at work in our world, whether we can see them or not. And we pray that you would give us eyes to recognize it. We pray that you would fill this place with your spirit to touch our hearts and help us to see the, what you've designed for us and the good things that you call us to and, and what we can do to invest in your work in this world and particularly in our city. And so we lift this time to you in the name of Christ and ask that you would speak to us through your word in, in it. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, the world was shocked this past week by the suicide of two celebrities, people that had attained wealth and success, that were at the top of their careers, that made an impact in people's lives. Kate Spade, a designer, um, Anthony Bourdain, a chef and a TV host, um, a guy that I really enjoyed for his curiosity and openness and willingness to learn new things and, and embrace people and learn about people's stories and someone that, that left an impact on a lot of people, as you can see by the public lament that came out in the wake of his death. And people are always surprised when wealthy and successful people fall victim to depression and end up taking their own lives and struggle with those things. And, and it, we, I think we have this idea that wealth and success and notoriety and fame must, because for so many of us, these are things that we wish that we had more of. We wish we had more success and more wealth. And when we see people at the pinnacle, we wonder how can they possibly feel empty and, and feel desperate. Now, within that, there's a reality that mental illness and depression doesn't know a socioeconomic class or success level. There's also a reality that we need to see that that we can achieve everything that we want and attain to everything that our hearts desire, and we can see example after example after example that it simply doesn't satisfy. Um, Tom Brady, the Patriots quarterback, um, arguably the greatest of all time. Alvin would argue that there's no argument to that. Um, <laughs> he said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I, I mean, I've done it. I'm 27, and what else is there for me? That was in 2005. He's won three more Super Bowls, and he still would represent the same reality. Uh, Anthony Hopkins, well-known actor, successful actor, said, you know, I meet young people, and they want to act, and they want to be famous, and I tell them, when you get to the top of the tree, there is nothing up there. Most of this is nonsense. Most of this is a lie. You see, we pursue success and wealth in our work and in our lives and think that if we could just get to a certain level, if we could just attain to a certain level of success or a certain level of income or a certain level of notoriety or a certain level of influence, that we would finally be able to rest, that we would finally be able to be satisfied. We do this whether you're religious or irreligious. 
If you're irreligious, if you live a life apart from God, then, then you've got to understand that like Tom Brady and Anthony Hopkins, you will reach a point in your life where it, it, you'll find out that it's empty in the end. That your labor and the things that you worked hard for will be left to somebody else who didn't earn it at all. That every one of us, the vast majority of us at least, within three generations of our death won't be remembered at all. There won't be anyone left that knows who we were. And so you'll either end up working your job for a paycheck and just putting in the hours for the grind, or you'll end up finding your identity in your work, and that's what can be scarier. But this happens on a religious side, too. A lot of you, functionally, live in a religious system that tells you that you've always got more to do, that you're always pushing and grinding, trying to, trying to earn good things, God's, God, earn things for God's kingdom, earn things for God's sake, and, and so you have this pressure that you need to do more and try harder, and we cloak it in all kinds of good Christian-sounding talk. But some of you are living with a weight of guilt. You look at other people around you and think, that's what it actually must look like to live the Christian life, and and, you, and, and too often, you can actually pursue your justification, not by faith, but by what you're doing for God's sake in your work. Real Christianity is neither one of those, though. Real Christianity doesn't tell you, do more, try harder, accomplish more, be more, so that you can get God's favor. But the, both options that we just talked about are saying, earn your identity through your work, and both your religion and religion will land you in a place of bondage, in a place that will leave you empty. Real Christianity is the belief that God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, that he lived, that he died in our place for our sin, and that on the cross, when he said it is finished, he was saying that the work of our salvation and our, or the accomplishment of our righteousness before God was finished, it was accomplished, and that in him we can actually be given God's favor, and, and, and we are given a connection and, and to God himself, and that's real Christianity frees us from the bondage of having to work to earn our way to an identity because our identity has been earned by Christ who was raised from death to life. And if we actually believe those things, it can free us to invest our lives self-sacrificially and free us from finding our identity rooted purely in our work. I want to pause because for some of you, everything that I hope that you get out of tonight's sermon, I just preached. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, this is the foundation point. We've got no better news to offer you than that Christ came for you, out of God's love for you, laid himself down for you. That if you turn away from your own pursuit of identity to accomplish your standing before God and embrace Christ's finished work on your behalf, you'll be freed to life now and for eternity. You can turn to him even tonight. That the grind that you've gotten caught up in, that of trying to search for that, the, that, that is going to come up empty in the end. And so rather than continue to pursue that emptiness, stop tonight and turn toward Jesus and you can find hope in life. Now if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a Christian, then we need to know what it means to work as a Christian, how to approach our work. And so we're in this series that we've called Work Matters. Last week, we, st we started by looking at God's design for work and that God did create work, that he was a model for work in the beginning in, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Now, if you were here last week, we saw that in those co couple of chapters, God did three things in creation. He, he looked at what was 
formless and what was empty and what was, what was wild and undeveloped. And do you remember the three things that he did, church? Number one, form, fill, and cultivate. All right. Some of you are grimacing, feeling like you should remember. Some of you are like, I wasn't here. That's fine. Now you know. So I'm going to ask all of you to join me in that. So there are three things. God formed, filled, and cultivated. So the first was he form. You're almost with me. That's great. This is going to come back up. All right. So this is what God did in creation. It says that now God cre- in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. It was shapeless and empty. And so we, in Genesis 1, we see that he shaped what was formless. He gave form to it. He filled what was empty. And then in chapter 2, cultivated a garden for, for humanity. And so that's now God's design for us extends to us because we bear his image and likeness. That's the foundation for human dignity, that every one of us in this room, every person in this city and in this world reflects the image and likeness of God. And so as we join him in his work, the three things that God calls us to do in joining him in his work are? Right. So now when this, is, this is the foundation biblically for God's design for us, and this extends to eternity. The biblical vision of eternity isn't some ethereal spiritual reality. It's instead a physical, real place, a renewed and restored heavens and earth. In Revelation 21, we get a portrait of a, of a, of a new city that descends and a working city. And so our, we're going, eternity is not just sitting around. It's, it's actually engaging in God's work and continuing to form and to fill and to cultivate, but in a perfect creation without sin, without sorrow, without sickness, and without death. And so within that, then, we come to an understanding tonight of what it means to join God in that work and how we do that more practically. And so we're going to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's in the New Testament. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. It was a church that he had planted. And this is what we read, starting in verse 9. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so... Paul, or the Apostle Paul, wrote this to the Thessalonian church. This is what they're aspire to, to aspire to as a community. It feels a little strange, doesn't it? Aspire to live quietly, work with your hands. Just as we instructed you, mind your own affairs so that you may walk properly before outsiders as we instructed you. That doesn't... Like, none of us would put that up as our life's mission statement, right? What do you want to do with your life? Can you imagine that answer in the District of Columbia? If you walked up to somebody and they're like, hey, what do you do? And you told them your job, and they said, so what are you aiming for? What do you aspire to? Especially those of you who are, like, students and interns. Can you imagine if, if like, at your graduation is out of undergrad or grad school or whatever level you're pursuing, if, you, if somebody came up to you and said, what are you going to do? What are you going to do to to use this degree and the education you've been given? And your answer was, you know, I really aspire to live quietly and mind my own affairs, work with my hands. 
Like, that doesn't happen in this town. Some of you came into D.C., and you didn't, you didn't arrive in this place by accident just because you wanted to, like, coast your way through life. You're here because you want to change the world. It's that time of year where we have interns come in. Some of you are probably interns joining us tonight. Welcome. We would love to be with you for the couple of months that you're here, and we'll engage with you and, and help you to see and hopefully develop and cultivate an actual heart for this city while you're here. And so if that's the case, though, you don't come to an internship in D.C., without a desire to do something that's going to change the world. Even those of you who grew up here in D.C., there's a hustle to this place. And even people that grew up in this place know that you've got you've to work hard, you've got to go for it if you're going to make it in this place. And so there's a, there's a hustle to D.C. And, and to read this, like, this, it feels like a shocking statement. And this is the Apostle Paul. Like those of you that have grown up in churches have heard your whole life and especially, like, youth groups are amazing at this, and youth conferences and things where they'll say, like, you're going to go change. This is the generation that is going to change the world. And you've been pumped your entire life that you are significant and your life is going to change the world. And then this is the Apostle Paul, the man who we hold up and say, look at what he did and look at what he sacrificed and the radical Christianity he pursued. He, in 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about the rights he laid down as an apostle, that He says, look, all the other apostles are married. I'm still a single man for the sake of the gospel. All the other apostles have taken money. You could have paid me, but I raised my support from the Macedonians so that I didn't take anything from you for the sake of the gospel. I laid all this stuff down, and Paul was beaten and shipwrecked and bitten by snakes and whipped and all of those things for the sake of the gospel. And we would expect him here, as he writes to a church he planted, to have a much larger vision for what they'd pursue. Instead, he says, you guys love really well. You've been taught by God how to love, and your reputation of love has spread throughout the region. No one has to teach you anything about that, so do it more and more. And what you need to aspire to is to live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands as we instructed you. And so there's something here for us, church. In Christ, we're called to work for the common good. And so today, we're going to look at what it means to work for the common good. The first is that we need to understand that God provides and protects through human work. God models for us. Now, again, in in Genesis 1 and 2, forms, fills, cultivates, calls us to join him in that work, form, fill, and cultivate as those who bear his image and likeness, and we need to realize that as God works in his world to provide for people and protect people, he does that through human agency. He uses people to accomplish it. This was something that the reformers understood. We need to understand, we, I don't know how often we realize what, how radical the Protestant Reformation was, not just religiously, politically, in, in worldview and philosophy, the Protestant Reformation shook this world up. One of the ways it shook this world up was even the use of the word vocation. Prior to the Reformers, in the Roman Catholic Church, vocations were holy orders. A voca- vocation, the root, is, is a calling. And so to use the language of calling meant that you were going to be a priest or a nun or a monk. You're going to be within the church. The Reformers, Luther in particular, said, no, 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 no. God's calling on people isn't limited to holy orders. In fact, God's calling on people, a vocation, could be anyone. And he treated his barber and his baker and farmers with the same dignity and respect as being called by God to that station in life as he would any monk or priest. 
And so Luther, we're reflecting on Psalm 147, he, he read these words the same as we will now, where it says, Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. See, Luther read this, and he said, How does God strengthen the bars of the gates if not by the hands of the soldiers that guard them? How does God bless our children within us if not by the wombs of the mothers who carry them and will raise them? How does God make peace at our borders if not by our kings and politicians who lead well and and lead toward justice and in cooperation to make that peace with other nations? How does God fill us with wheat if not by the hands of the farmers and the bakers who grow and process that wheat? God uses human beings and human agency to accomplish these things. Luther said, in light of that, he said, Therefore, I advise no one to enter any religious order or priesthood unless he is forearmed with this knowledge and understands that the work of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks, but, all that, but that all works are measured before God by faith alone. Some of you need this encouragement tonight. We can have a tendency in the church to lift up certain positions and lift up people in the church in, in ministry positions as if that's a holier vocation or a holier pursuit. If you've grown up in the church, then you've had pastors and missionaries celebrated to some of you to unhealthy levels as if this is the only way to really be sacrificial before God. And that if you're pursuing other things, it must be because, you know, you're really selling out to your own selfish desires. That's ludicrous. And for others of you, it's amazing to me. Some of you are new Christians, and it's always depressing to me when a new Christian, when somebody becomes a Christian, and the first thing they say is, all right, now which seminary should I go to? And I want to go... Don't do that to yourself. That is a lot of money and a lot of work. And are you sure you want to do this job? I mean, I love my job. But, but that isn't the only answer. And, and so don't go into religious orders or the priesthood unless you know that the work that we do, if you are doing good work that does anything to pr- join God in his work in forming, filling, cultivating, to provide and to protect for others, that there is not one whit of difference in the sight of God because all of our work is measured before God by faith alone. So we need to hear that tonight. Anything that joins, that contributes to society and brings order from chaos and reflects God's work in his world, providing for us and for others, is, is, it can be a holy vocation that God has called you to in order to join him in his work. And that changes everything for us. If all types of work can really be a calling... And any station that we find ourselves in can be seen as God's calling for us. Then our work enters into God's work. Our work is not just earning a paycheck. It's not, but we also don't need to find our identity wrapped up in it. We can be connected to a bigger story and something transcendent. And that's so freeing and releasing for us. Our work isn't a a barrier to the greater things God asks of you. 
And even so often, like, again, some of you grew up in the church with this idea of, like, your work is combating the time that you actually get to do God's work, and it doesn't mesh, and so you have this tension that you felt your whole life, but let me try to do everything I can to try to free you from that tension and lift that load off of you tonight. Your work can find a connection to the transcendence of God's work in this world. At least the second thing we need to understand is we need to work within our calling. You need to work within your calling. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said this. He said, if it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. In, in 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul says the same thing. If you need some scripture to back up Dr. King's sentiment here, Paul said, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God called him. This is my rule in all the churches. It's, the same, it's what he's saying in 1 Thessalonians. Aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands. Do good work and do it to the glory of God. Um, I was over, we've got a church plant, a sister church in Belfast that we've been invested in alongside for like five or six years. And so um, I was with Lucas Parks, our church planter, the guy who started that church. And he took, he's taken me a few times to go and see Giant's Causeway, which is one of the most beautiful natural wonders I've ever seen on this earth, in, on the north coast of Ireland. And so we went to Giant's Causeway, and I was amazed. So they have this parking lot. You only have to pay to, see, to park in the parking lot. And he was like, ah, forget that. He grew up there. And so we drove around in this country road and parked in some, like, field. And we're walking toward Giant's Causeway. And in, in UK and in the British Isles, they have landmarks that are marked with blue plaques. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, the, the blue circles on homes and on places so you can see, like, oh, there's something important here. And so, um, you know, these are places that I've seen and I've seen in other places and thought, oh, there's something important here. So I was, I was walking down this country road toward Giant's Causeway and I saw a house and I was like, oh, there's a blue plaque. Lucas, I want to go see what it is. And I walked up to it and it had a guy's name on it and it had a blue plaque because here lived this man and his vocation was that he was a potato breeder might be the most Irish thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it was amazing to me. I was like, what, what in the world? And there was actually like this display next to the house that talked about his work in breeding potatoes. Now, for us in the States, that might seem kind of trivial. In Ireland, when there was a potato famine and people were starving to death, and this guy created techniques to be able to farm, to be able to feed people, he, his work as a potato breeder was seen with such dignity and honor that he, he fulfilled what Dr. King was calling us to. He bred potatoes like Michelangelo painted pictures, and he bred potatoes like Beethoven composed music, like Shakespeare wrote poetry so well that all the host of heaven and every tourist that goes to Giant's Causeway will stop and say, here lived a great potato breeder. Church, there's something beautiful in that to aspire to and to encourage us and free us whatever position, whatever place God has put you in, make the most of it. 
It doesn't mean that you're stuck there and you should never aspire to advance or to advance your station. It doesn't mean it's a prison, but it also means that you don't have to be a slave to an American dream about what it looks like to be successful in this life, and you can actually embrace what God has built into you and the opportunities and the doorways he has opened to you and the places he has put you because he's done it for the sake of your good and his glory. And it's important to know who God created you to be and to work within your calling. Every one of you does have something unique, a mix of skills and and gifts, and a mix of things that you're passionate about, that you care deeply about. And if you can find in your life the intersection between your gifts and your skills and the things you're passionate about and real needs that are in front of you, there's a sweet spot in that combination where you can find the most fulfilling work that you will do in your life. Even if that work doesn't mean much money or prestige, you can actually find joy and a sense of purpose and fulfillment in it. And the reality is that for every one of us, in whatever place we find ourselves, we can, find, we can look for that mix. What skills do I have to bring to the table here? What are the things I'm passionate about? And how do, I, how do I bring those things to bear where God has put me right now? Work within your calling. Uh, most of us don't live with that kind of purpose and fulfillment and, or don't have a sense of contentment. Uh, we need to understand, this is where the biblical stories, particularly in the Old Testament, can really help us. We read stories like the story of Joseph, Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery and taken off to Egypt, a land he didn't know. And everything in Joseph's life seemed to just get worse. He got framed by his boss's wife and thrown in jail. He had a friend in jail that said he'd remember him when he got brought before Pharaoh and his friend didn't remember him and he sat in jail for another two years. Eventually, though, God opened the door for him to advance and he became the second in command over all of Egypt and God used Joseph in his wisdom to stockpile food that ended up saving his own family when a famine came. Read the story of Daniel, and Daniel was serving under a wicked king in a wicked empire, and he was serving in the seat of in the in the house of government, and he served faithfully while also clinging to his convictions in right worship of the one true God. Look at Esther. Esther was used by God to bring people back from exile to influence policy policy and legislation of Cyrus, the emperor. Not one of those three was clergy. And God worked through all three of them. When we read in the Old Testament, there's three books that need to be read together, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. All three are about the return of God's people from exile. The Israelites were conquered and brought into slavery in Babylon and Assyria. Those three books talk about the return of God's people to Jerusalem. And those three books we need to hold together because they they show us the way that God worked in different spheres to bring the same end. In, In Ezra, we have a clergyman, a pastor, essentially a priest, who taught the Bible to bring a spiritual resurgence as and to stir people's affections to God. Nehemiah wasn't, though. He was a layman who used his skill set to help rebuild the wall to protect the people as they were coming home. And Esther was a, started as a concubine and w- raised up through the ranks to become the queen who worked for just laws in the secular realm. And it took all three of them to bring the restoration of God's people and the revitalization of Jerusalem. One of them, Ezra, did evangelism and discipleship. Nehemiah invested his life in community development. And Esther was in legislative work. See, 
God's people needed provision and protection in multiple ways from multiple angles, and, and he was working through them to form and to fill and to cultivate, and he continues to do that. And so you can, through Christ, if you look, begin to reframe the way that we see work, you'll be able to see the dignity and beauty of your calling. And through Christ, you can embrace those things. And so work for the common good. God provides and protects through human work. We need to work within your calling. And then third, work for the common good of our city. We need to engage in this place with our work. While God's people were in exile in Babylon, he, they had some false prophets cropping up who were telling them, hey, your time in Babylon's about over. God's going to free you. And then God said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, you get to be the one to go and tell them that none of that's true and they're still going to be stuck there. And so Jeremiah wrote a, a letter that we wrote it down and sent it from the Lord, and it said this in Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So God starts by acknowledging, I've sent you there to his people. I've sent you into exile. I'm the reason that you went from Jerusalem to Babylon. And so here's what he has to say to his people. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In its shalom, in its peace, in its, in its fullness, in, its, in Babylon's healing, you will find your peace and fullness and healing. This gets extended. This is what, what God calls his people to here. Do you see that it's, it's the same calling as Genesis 1 and 2? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, cultivate this garden that I've put you in. Now he's saying, remember, what are the three things God did in Genesis 1 and 2? And so he's saying to his people in Babylon, go and build houses. Form new things. Invest into that place. Fill it. Have sons and daughters. Have your sons and daughters get married. Keep multiplying and fill that place and cultivate it. Plant gardens and seek the good of that city. And so this is his call to his people. This gets extended then into the New Testament language and framework that Peter in 1 Peter 2 says of all Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you are a sojourner in an exile in this world, that it's not your real home, that your real home is an eternity in the glory of Christ. And so as a sojourner in exile, he says, live your life so well among the nations that in the end, others will turn and glorify God when Christ returns. That's what God is calling his people to here in Babylon. This is what Paul is extending through 1 Thessalonians 4, our passage for tonight, saying this is what you need to aspire to. Live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands. Invest in the place where God has put you. Whether you pick up trash or sweep streets or breed potatoes, anything that we do to bring order out of chaos, forming and filling and cultivating have inherent dignity and value. The sociologist at University of Virginia named James Hunter says faithful presence in the world means that Christians are fully present and committed to their spheres of influence, whatever they may be, their families, their neighborhoods, voluntary activities, and their places of work. Church, if we understand this, it'll free us to work with excellence. 
to pour ourselves into our jobs, not to be caught up in money or status, but to do our good work out of, out of uh, rest and self-assuredness that our, our status has been accomplished by Christ. This is what, what Paul calls the Colossians Church 2 in Colossians 3 when he says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And so what does it mean to work informed by the gospel for the good of our city, it means that Christians should be known for their excellence in their job. They shouldn't be just hitting the bottom line minimums on things. They should be exceeding that and working well. And the, the quality and the excellence of your effort in your workplace is going to stand as a witness to the, to the work of the gospel in transforming you. Think about it this way. How many people, go, you all know that guy or that girl in your, in, the, in your workplace, right? The one that doesn't get things done, that is unreliable, that shows up late all the time, that nobody can count on. And usually that's the person, people might go out and have a drink with that person because they're probably fun, but that's not the person that people turn to and, think, and say, when a life crisis hits, hey, will you please help me because you've proven yourself to be so trustworthy. Work with excellence. As to the Lord, not just earning your boss's approval, but working because you know that you've got an inheritance sealed with Christ. Also, Jesus frees us to work out of love. That was his call when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, he said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we're called to love God supremely and love others sacrificially. Think about this. Can you imagine? There might be nothing more countercultural in this city than for people to love their coworkers self-sacrificially. Can you imagine how that would reshape your workplace? Can you imagine somebody living in, in, in the workplace in a, in a Capitol Hill office as a staffer and living self-sacrificially to see the good of their coworkers in their job? to try to make sure that their coworkers are flourishing and finding opportunities for advancement. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being in the cutthroat nature of a DC law firm and having someone that's working for the, with excellence and putting in the long hours and also, rather than slitting people's throats to climb the ladder themselves, investing themselves in the good of their coworkers? There may be nothing more countercultural in this place than simply acting like Christ calls us to, but even in our work. He says this in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, he says, you guys know how to love. You've been taught by God how to love. Your reputation for love has spread throughout the region. And so live in that love. Do it more and more. And don't be dependent on no one. Don't drain the community, but instead be an investor for the common good of your community. And that can be true in any work. It doesn't need to be in a law office or on the hill or in proximity to power that there's importance in any work we do, again, as we've already seen. And so whether you're, I mean, like air conditioner repair comes to mind tonight. <laughs> but whatever your field of work, you have the privilege to join God in his work in shaping culture. And so... We work hard for the common good of our city, and fourth, we work hard to the glory of God. We should aspire to do our jobs with excellence because we know and we see that everything we do contributes to God's work in this world. 
We can see how others are used by God for good and see our own life as it ties into his story. And if you really believe the gospel, that then that means that you're free to have a transcendent purpose, that you know that this world is going somewhere and that your work contributes to that, and you know that God is good and that he's going to bring things to fruition. And so it's not just working for a paycheck. It's not just doing enough to get by. You're freed out of, to work out of love for others, and, and, it'll, and in that we need to understand how our work connects to the glory of God. And so that's, with the time we have left this evening, I want to do that, get really practical and look at, different career fields and try to help to say, how do we t retell the narrative of our career in our, in our field within the light of the gospel? Um, to understand that, we need to understand our job's bottom line. Every field has a bottom line, a, a goal and a pursuit that it heads toward. Peter Drucker was a business guru that wrote for years. His material is still looked at. He's looked at as an expert. And he said there are basically three fields, maybe a fourth, but it's kind of a more difficult one to categorize. He spent most of his life in the business world and business in, as a field. A second field is government, and a third is nonprofit. Now, he connected military as the one that's difficult because it connects with government, but it's kind of its own thing. So, but within those primary three, he said, we need to understand the bottom line in order to understand the narratives of those places and what we're shooting for. And so if you're in business, if you are running a business, what is the bottom line? Come on, DC isn't all government. There's gotta be somebody that can help here. <laughs> it's money. It's, it's, it's actually a bottom line. That's like where the expression comes from is you're looking at, at profit versus expenses and you want the profit to be greater than expenses so that your net income is greater. The goal of a business is to make more money annually. That is the goal. That's not a bad goal. I think Christians sometimes can be like, well, it says the money is the root of all kinds of evil and so I don't want to say that that's my goal. It's okay. The goal of a business is to make money. The goal of government isn't necessarily to make money. They do spend a lot of money. But the bottom line in government and how you know if you've done what you're supposed to do isn't necessarily the bottom line of a financial plan. The bottom line in government is, is votes. Will your constituency keep you in a position of power? That's why those of you who work in, on the House side as a staffer are in the constant grind of a two-year cycle of constantly campaigning because you've got to keep the votes. In the nonprofit world, it gets more complicated because there's multiple bottom lines, but understanding your bo the bottom line of your career field and of your particular um, focus in your job is going to help you to retell the narrative of your workplace in light of the gospel. Tim Keller is fantastic at this. He wrote a little book called Every Good Endeavor that looks at work, and in there, he, he talks about retelling the narrative of our workplaces, and he, gets, he lists some questions that are, are helpful for us. If you want to get into that more, I would recommend you go buy the book. It's fantastic. It's really good stuff. Nobody does this aspect of retelling narratives of the workplace better than him. And he says, ask these kinds of things. What's the storyline? Who are the protagonists and antagonists in your office? Who are the good guys and the bad guys? Most of us should be able to identify that pretty quickly. If you're in politics right now, there's never been an easier time to identify the protagonists and antagonists. Doesn't mean it's objectively the case on a cosmological level, but it means in your workplace who are seen that way. Now once you've done that, begin to think, what are the underlying assumptions in my workplace? What do people assume in the presuppositions about meaning and morality and, and origin and destiny? Where did things start and where are we headed? And then begin to ask, what are people's idols here? What are people most afraid of or most hopeful for? What are the things that terrify us most? 
and now begin to think, what, how does this connect to the larger story? How does this line up with what God has done in Christ? What, how does this, what needs to be retold in light of Jesus? And what does it mean to be here with Christian distinctiveness? So we can begin to see our work on a larger scope and on an eternal scale. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a short story that hit um, in the papers when he was still alive. He's the author who wrote The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings series. He wrote a story called Niggle's Leaf about this artist who was painting a tree and he came to the end of his life and death came with a carriage to take him away. And when he stepped back from his painting, he was distraught to see that his tree that he had spent his entire life painting was a single leaf. He felt like his life was a waste. Now, the reality is this was probably like Tolkien's own psychotherapy for fearing not getting Lord of the Rings done and published. But he wrote this story about Niggle, this artist then, landing in eternity, getting to eternity. And when he got there, he saw his leaf. It had contributed to, to God's new and renewed place. But it wasn't just his leaf. The entire tree that he envisioned was there. But it wasn't just the tree. There was a landscape and mountains in the distance and a setting sun. And it was more than he ever imagined he could contribute to. And it, but it, it took getting to the end to see it. Now, how do we begin to see our work that way? That what we're contributing may feel insignificant in the moment, but how does it connect to what God is doing on a broader scale? And so think about this. Just a few categories for practical side tonight. Business. Bottom line is income and wealth accumulation. So what if the profit was a part of something greater? This is something that Apple actually did really well under Steve Jobs when Steve Jobs was at the helm. Steve Jobs had a perspective of saying, okay, let's not just make the fastest, most efficient computers. What if we actually thought about the consumer? What if we actually had the opportunity to better people's lives through the product we made? And so he became obsessive about design and how things look so that even if you open up the inside of an iPhone, it's still a beautiful design. It isn't a mess and a mishmash of things. And so he said that there was, that he saw opportunities to further equality and human dignity and opportunity and saw his customers as more than mere profit numbers. And so this is where, in your, if you're in the business world, your work contributes to the betterment of people's families and provision for people, and you can connect to something greater in a narrative in your workplace so that there can be more about the, just doing your job with good ethics and leading a workplace Bible study. If you're in media and journalism, there may be no more important time in our lifetime than right now for you. We need the freedom of the press. Now, no one is an objective reporter, but everyone is reaching for truth. And so this is, where, this is a field that success and recognition can be dangerous because a good story takes heroes and villains. And, to, and, and it's too easy to overplay heroes and to over-demonize villains. And that's what sells, which is what we see across the board right now in media. And so think about this. The gospel can free you if you're serving. We have people, some of you in this church, serve in journalism and media. You are freed to retell narratives. You are freed in Christ to be more even-handed with the way that you approach people and to actually write and speak about people as if they bear the image and likeness of God and are worthy of dignity and respect. You also understand brokenness and sin and that every person bears God's image, but every person needs redemption and restoration, and you can begin to tell stories of redemption and restoration that actually give hope rather than that create fear and crisis that move people to action that way. And in the end, 
you know that your work connects to God's work because we're told that now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Truth will be revealed. Many of you work in politics. A lot holds the same as in journalism, but, but foc- you, and it's good to focus on right governance, but if you're a Christian, you can be freed from, from patently demonizing the other side, whatever that side is for you. And the gospel can free you also from unrealistic expectations of political saviors. And you might even be able to press on for a lifetime. Now, we see a grind in D.C. of people that come in, especially young folks fresh out of school that want to get engaged in politics, and usually within 12 to 18 months, they're having a complete crisis of identity. Some of you have pressed through that barrier. Some of you got out. We can look, though. If you're in politics, start reading about people like William Wilberforce. Go pick up a biography. Wilberforce fought for over 20 years for abolition, fought for a cause he was passionate about, worked with political opponents all along the way, and was laser-focused on what he wanted to accomplish. He didn't know if he'd ever get a breakthrough, and in the end, the fullness of the breakthrough only came after his death. But you can, if you're in politics, you can look ahead to a time when a perfect king will bring perfect justice and a perfect reign on earth. If you're in medicine, perhaps nobody sees the physical impact and reality of brokenness and sin quite like people in the medical field. Um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a British preacher, but he was a, a physician, a medical doctor first, and he said, there are many whom I have had the privilege of meeting whose tombstones might well bear the grim epitaph, born a man, died a doctor. The greatest danger which confronts the medical profession is that he may become lost in his profession, and this is the special temptation of the doctor. I think this is true of every helping profession. If you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, if you're a counselor, if you're a pastor involved in ministry, if you're a teacher involved in education, you can get so caught up in the nobility of your work and so drained by what you're facing on a day-in and day-out basis in the brokenness of people's lives that you become numb to your own heart and more caught up in your identity of that work than you are realistic about what's happening in front of you. If you're in medicine, though, the gospel can for you to take the whole person into perspective. Not just look at the physical, but know that there's a soul and emotions and a spiritual side to people and meet them in their distress. And we could go on and on and on tonight, but, but it's warm. <laughs> and so we'll begin to wrap up. Yeah, if, you, if you're an artist, you can be freed from mere unending pursuit of self-expression to engage in all of creation and, and capture the beauty of God's glory and the tragedy of sin and the promise of restoration. If you're a stay-at-home parent who develops yourself full-time as a homemaker, you can be freed from idolizing your children and their opportunities and even understand your children's brokenness and sin and create and cultivate a home life that exemplifies God's grace and love and infuses your family that way. See, understanding the gospel, believing that God really is at work in this world and real, things really are on a trajectory toward restoration can, makes it so that we can infuse our work with excellence but be freed from our, finding our identity in it. Like, church, it would be a beautiful gospel witness if, if you, as Christians in this city, would simply wake up tomorrow morning and post on social media how grateful you are to invest in your workplace that morning. Most Monday morning posts are not that. <laughs> but we're freed to see opportunity in our workplace and the opportunity and dignity in our work, not just working for a paycheck, not just trying to get something from other people, serving people out of love and respect because we know they're valuable, and it's the gospel that frees us that way. And so if we understand that the Almighty God provides and protects through human work, 
And we can find value and dignity in every good work. No job becomes menial or unimportant. Only Jesus can free us to experience that in its fullness, though. And, and if we have to earn our salvation, if we have to earn and work our way there before God, then we're going to burn out on it. But as soon as you realize that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, that there is nothing you can do to earn God's, satis- earn God's smile upon you, then you can actually be freed from the, your need to find fulfillment in your work alone and, and find satisfaction and fulfillment that are guaranteed for you in, for all of eternity. That's when you can find real satisfaction You can work for the good of others and not just your own selfish advancement. You can work with excellence because you have true purpose and something transcendent you're connected to. And you can work out of love instead of selfish ambition. Listen, in Christ, you can see God's love for you. In Christ, You are valued and valuable because he has shown how valuable you are to God that he would lay down his life for you. In Christ, you can find your identity and satisfaction and know that you are loved because in in Christ, you're made lovely. That's where you can find hope and rest. And that's why it's a lofty calling that the Apostle Paul lays down to the Thessalonian church When he says to them, no one needs to teach you how to love because you've been taught by God how to love. And aspire now to live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly for outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's pray. Father, we pray tonight that you would help us. Would you forgive us for finding our identity in our work? Would you forgive us for for believing that we can earn your favor? Would you help us and free us to be able to cry out to you and rest in the finished work of Christ on our behalf? Father, we long for it to be in D.C. as it is in heaven. We believe that you can work through us. We believe that the diversity of, of workplace investment that you have built into your church is for the sake of your glory and that we get to bring your truth into our work and breathe redemption into the things that we're invested in. And so would you help us to live our lives for the significance and glory of Christ more than for our own and free us to live lives that are shaped by love for you and for others. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.